Is it time? I think it is. Well, let's get started. We are back with the most lively analysis of the Northeast Ohio news that you can find, and we have news galore to talk about. Huge settlements in the opioid crisis. What could be the last gasps of a move to let you reject a bailout of Ohio nuclear plants? A judge who is making things secret that should not be secret. It's this week in the CLE for October 24th. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn here with co-host Laura Johnston, who I'm hoping is not sitting here in fear of me. Laura has a fascinating story this week on the prevalent fear among women of attacks by men. Yeah, it's a talker. It's also one of those things that pretty much every woman knows, while most men have no idea. Let's talk about it in a minute. First, let's review the top stories of the past week. I'll start. Cuyahoga and Summit counties received a $260 million settlement to help people overcome addiction and solve other problems caused by the opioid crisis. Four major drug companies reached a settlement with the two counties hours before the nation's first federal opioid trial was set to begin in Cleveland. The pharmacy chain Walgreens did not reach an agreement, and that means we could still see a big Cleveland trial next year with Summit and Cuyahoga counties going after Walgreens, Walmart, CVS, and Rite Aid. In an unusual twist, a federal court judge has decided that the nuclear bailout case before him was more properly considered by the Ohio Supreme Court and sent it over there for a decision. The people trying to let voters keep or kill the $900 million bailout or First Energy Solutions nuclear plants are the ones who took this matter to the court. They have argued that state law unfairly limits the time they have to gather signatures to place the question on the ballot. Their deadline to get those signatures was Monday, and they did not have enough. They sued in U.S. District Court to get more time. A federal judge denied the request, but said it is more of an issue involving the Ohio Constitution than the U.S. Constitution, so now the Supreme Court justices will give it a look. Some of the first biopsies of lung tissue of people with vaping sickness have been done by the Cleveland Clinic, and the findings contradict some beliefs about what is causing the illnesses. The clinic says the biopsies show acute injuries on the lungs, not signs of infection. The research calls into question, without completely disproving, the popular theory that vitamin E oil mixed into vaping fluid is to blame. Doctors say the lungs of people with vaping illness have the same appearance as lungs injured by anything toxic, chemicals, bugs, drugs, and the way they're healing proves that the lungs have been physically damaged. Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court is about to test a proposed system of bail reform that aims to free many more suspects accused of felonies without requiring them to put up any money. Administrative and presiding judge John J. Russo told Cleveland.com this week that the system could be ready to use early next year by judges in the Cleveland Municipal Court, where many felony suspects now appear for their first bail hearings. But first, the Common Police Court staff will hypothetically apply the new system to actual felony cases that come before the Municipal Court to evaluate the system's effectiveness. For more than three years, Cleveland.com has advocated for bail reform as part of its Justice for All series. The series has documented how low-income criminal suspects are unfairly jailed solely because they are unable to pay for bail. 78 people who say they were abused by former Ohio State University team doctor Richard Strauss have called on the Ohio legislature to change the law limiting the statute of limitations. In an opinion piece published on Cleveland.com, the victims say OSU employees who knew about the abuse but did nothing to stop it should be held accountable. 
Victims would be able to sue the university to be compensated for the trauma they suffered as a result of the school's inaction. Strauss, who killed himself in 2005, worked at OSU between 1979 and 1998 and abused at least 177 young men and boys. I'm surprised how Ohio State has managed in this case to duck the notoriety that Michigan State has because of a similar case there. OSU's strategy just seems to be keep its head down, hope this goes away. That's why the piece we published is so important. These victims are taking a stand for accountability. Well, you know, your piece this week also deals in a way with sexual assault or more specifically the fear of it. This is one of those things, the story that simply separates men and women. So let's talk about it a bit. What's the gist of the story and how did you come to write it? Well, we all started talking about the story last year when the Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was nominated. The women in the newsroom were sharing times when they felt unsafe and the men including you, just seemed kind of mind-blown. It's stuff that's become common sense, like keeping your drink in your hand at a party so you don't get roofied, or never leaving a party until all your friends are accounted for. Stuff that gets drilled into women, but men don't really have to worry about. And because it's considered common sense, no one really studies the issue or whether that burden on women is fair. You know, I I think everyone understands the need for caution when walking down a deserted street at night, or or the idea that you've got to protect your drink because there are bad guys out there. But this goes so far beyond that. I mean, the idea of looking on the floor of your back seat of your car every time you get into it, checking for hidden attackers, that's just not something men do. No, and I think the fear of... The level of fear differs among women depending on how and where you were raised, what experience you've had, what your friends do. So I don't check the backseat for attackers, but according to this 2003 survey, I'm in the minority. 66% of women said they did. I definitely, though, have my keys in my hand and my wits about me when I'm walking to my car in the dark. Where do you think this all comes from, this pervasive sense of fear that women have? Is it is it the parents that do this? Is it pop culture? Or is it based on the fact that so many women say they actually have dealt with frightening aggression from guys? I think it's a little of all of that. Random acts of violence are rare, but when they do happen, they're news and women pay attention. Like, remember that jogger who was raped at five in the morning a few years back? Everybody talked about that. Women are taught to stay safe, like not walking alone at night or not wearing too short a skirt in a certain neighborhood. Like it's our job not to get victimized. So women are afraid that any crime could lead to rape, too. And besides that, they're generally smaller and physically weaker than men, especially as they get older. Well, it's a good piece and people can find it on Cleveland.com. It's worth considering. I think a lot of people will be talking about it. Uh, It's time now to bring in a woman who doesn't put up with nonsense from anyone. Politics editor Jane Cahoon. Welcome back, Jane. Thanks. So we said before that one of the biggest stories of the week is illegal maneuvering on HB6, the big bailout of the Ohio nuclear industry. We got a curveball this week. Instead of ruling on the case once and for all, the federal judge said federal court is the wrong place for the argument. The court sent the case to the Ohio Supreme Court. So Jane, how fast do you think those justices will act? Well, it's hard to say. I don't think there's anything compelling them to act, but you got to believe they would expedite this. They didn't actually transfer the whole case to the Ohio Supreme Court. The federal judge basically turned to them for guidance on interpreting the Ohio Constitution as it applies to the rules for a referendum. In other words, do they get the full 90 days? Do Does the clock start ticking after the governor signs the bill? Or should they get credit for the time that was spent in approving their language, the time that they weren't allowed to hit the streets with the petitions, et cetera? You know, in the end, this seems like kind of a no-brainer, right? I mean, when you consider the efforts 
um, that the, the opponents went to block the gathering of the signatures, you can argue civil rights violations or voting rights violations, which the federal court would have jurisdiction over. But on the matter of whether a time limit is fair, that doesn't seem to be more of a state issue. And it's even more so since the U.S. Supreme Court punted on gerrymandering last year, basically said, yeah, yeah, that's not ours either. That's for the states. Right, right. I I think especially since the referendum rules are laid out in the Ohio Constitution, it's that's going to have to be determined by the Supreme Court. But in the end, it looks like those millions of dollars thrown at fighting this thing won. Their dirty tricks worked. The grassroots campaign to let voters decide on this, as of now, seems to have failed. Yes, I believe this is uh, a, a good example of the, the influence of money in politics and dirty tricks. That This campaign was just unprecedented. You had millions of dollars uh, spent by the allies of First Energy Solutions on ads, commercials, mailers, then they the hired blockers. That said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't don't give up your personal information to China. Right. Then they hired blockers to harass and follow people, and sometimes even get physical with them. And and then, not only that, they started hiring away the referendum uh, petition circulators, offering them more money to circulate this meaningless petition, meaningless in the sense of it wasn't aimed at getting anything on the ballot. It was just aimed at distracting and siphoning off their petition circulators, paying them more money to circulate a petition that said, oh, we decry foreign uh, ownership of power plants. Yeah, I uh, I think this is the new playbook. Uh, whenever something like this has this kind of success, no matter how sleazy it is, and I don't think anybody could argue that the pro-bailout forces were anything but sleazy, it worked. I mean, the, the, I think anybody that is looking at a referendum that they're opposed to across the country where money is involved, and this involved $900 million just for the nuclear plants, this will be the way it goes. Look, you see this, we talked about this last week, you're seeing it even on the local level in this Cleveland Heights issue. You're seeing kind of dirty tricks being played and right. and people using social media to spread disinformation. It's just sad because in the, in the nuclear plant thing, there was a legitimate issue for ratepayers to consider. Should their money be just handed over to First Energy Solutions to prop up these these obsolete plants? And voters won't get to consider it despite the grassroots effort. Right. If you saw any of the literature, it was not that argument. It was not a argument of here's right. the Here, facts clear. on this give side. Us, give here's us the money. You know you want to give us money. <laughs> yeah, it, it just it was nothing but confusion and scare tactics and obviously they took this to court. Could they take it to the elections commission and, and claim false advertising or is this it? I think that's kind of pointless honestly but that but i they could continue to appeal and who knows what happens i i think it's kind of dead though yeah all right well moving on our biggest asset in northeast ohio is lake erie and as we all know it has its challenges the two biggest threats today seem to be asian carp getting into it and the big algal blooms that that show up every year and threaten the drinking water so it's good news that the federal government has a plan to deal with them (laughs) Yes, the EPA this week announced priorities under the Great Lakes Initiative to monitor and contain the Asian carp and 
contain the agricultural runoff that contributes to the algal blooms and clean up polluted waterways. But you know, we've been doing that already. <laughs> I mean, there's been a lot of money spent on Asian carp already, and there's been a lot of money spent on on at least the idea of stopping farm runoff. The farmers aren't stopping. What what really happens now? I mean, they, the, the, the EPA director goes to Michigan and lays out the five-year plan. We're going to stop the carp. We're going to stop right. the runoff. But what changes, really? It, mm, not much. I mean, it, <laughs> seemed, the, the, it seemed it, like a dog and pony show. The, uh, maybe. They, they've spent $2.4 billion so far, I think they said, on the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which is strongly supported by all of our folks in Congress. So this is just a continuation of that, and it probably should be noted that the Trump administration actually tried to zero out that plan. Right, $300 million a year, right. and they tried to get rid of it. They tried to and get rid of it. twice at least, right? I yes. think both yes. years. And then, then I think a couple months ago, he made news when, you know, we're going to put $2 million toward cleaning up plastic, but it's already part of the $300 million. And how much is that really going to do? <laughs> All right, but, look, but look, but they did do the right thing in the end. And we did. should, yes, they were True. going to cut it. Nothing. That's the way government works. They, they examine things, they make proposals, and you hope the right thing happens. And in this case, uh, partly because of the rabid fight by Dave Joyce, the congressman from uh, Jaga County, it worked. Right. It did. Okay, so let's move on from what's ailing the lake to what's ailing people who vape. You handled a story this week, Jane, that flies in the face of conventional wisdom about vaping disease, and it involves the Cleveland Clinic. Yes, the clinic actually was able to biopsy the lungs of, I believe, eight men who got sick after vaping. And... They determined that this was most likely an acute lung injury as opposed to this uh, type of pneumonia that you could get from the vitamin E oil or other substances that where fat collects in your lungs. I am not a medical professional, <laughs> keep in mind here, but basically that had been the thinking and this sort of debunks that. It doesn't come up with a conclusive reason, but it really points to some sort of acute lung injury in these cases. So whatever's causing the condition, it involves some kind of toxin that causes physical damage to the lungs? That's yes, what it they like. think it's, it's pointing to a toxin or some sort of chemical that's doing this damage. All right, here's a story I like, both personally and professionally. We have a law proposed to limit bogus defamation lawsuits, the ones people file to stifle legitimate criticism by media and others. Who's proposing this legislation and what would it do? This is State Senator Matt Huffman of Lima, a Republican, and he has proposed this anti-SLAP legislation. SLAP stands for strategic lawsuits against public participation. And it's basically when somebody with deep pockets sues somebody who and trying to stifle their free speech. So this would set up a process whereby a judge could deter could quickly dispose of baseless lawsuits like that. So was there some reason why Huffman became so interested in this? He said it wasn't uh, any particular case he did propose this before a couple of years ago so it's something he's been pushing for he made some alterations to it this time around but someone cited uh, a case involving a big power company suing a little community newspaper trying to stamp out their reporting as 
you know, possibly being behind some of this. Well, this is more of a problem for people of limited means. If somebody hits a news organization like ours with a bogus lawsuit, we have the means to fight back. But for people without a lot of means and small media organizations, that kind of defamation suit can bankrupt them, even if they win. So I hope this passes. (laughs) Right. I think 36 other states have this kind of law, so it wouldn't be unusual. Okay, so let's talk about a public official who seems to be working against the public interest. Geauga County Judge David Andre is refusing to release more than 80 letters written on behalf of the former Highland Heights mayor who stole a bunch of money from the campaign account of Congressman Dave Joyce. What is his reasoning? (laughs) Well, Scott Coleman, who's the former mayor of Highland Heights, in fact pleaded guilty to felony grand theft for stealing $160,000 from Dave Joyce's campaign. And before he was sentenced, there was a sentencing report that his attorney argued should be filed under seal, and the judge agreed to that. It contains some psychological reports or psychological information, but it also contained these like 80-some letters written in support of Coleman, including by public officials. And we've seen before that these kinds of letters are routinely part of the public court file. It happened when Lance Mason was convicted of uh, brutally assaulting his wife in, a, in an incident previous to the one where he killed her. Right, we had Armin uh, Brutish and, and uh, Marsha Fudge writing glowing letters on his behalf. Right, um, and yes, it, did I mention he's a former judge and former state lawmaker, yeah. and so he had some support there, and we were able to report on that. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's happened numerous times, so we asked the judge to release that information and basically got a non-response to that. What makes this worse? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's concealing from the public who he's supposed to serve on behalf of a convicted felon, these important letters. At the same time, he gave what seems like a very, very light sentence. I mean, this guy stole a ton of money. He's a thief, a crook, and he got a month in jail. So the judge is protecting this guy's reputation, protecting the reputations of the people who wrote the letters, letting him off with a slap on the wrist, and then refusing to talk about it. Correct. However, he did, the judge did speak fairly extensively in court and he he cited these letters as as playing into his decision the letters that we cannot see but he also noted that Scott Coleman has paid a heavy price already in terms of losing his reputation losing his career hurting a lot of the people around him but let me stop you that's not in the criminal code the criminal code doesn't say <laughs> potential penalties are damaged reputation, loss of your career. The criminal code is you you can be fined and you can be locked up. And, you know, there are kids in Cleveland who have served a lot more time for stealing a lot less. Um, this There's no way you can see this as anything but a pretty sweetheart deal for this guy. And 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 it's worse, right? Because as a, as a... An organization, we've always come out very strongly on people who abuse the public trust. This guy had persuaded that town to elect him mayor, and he's betrayed all of them because he's a crook. Well, and I think he admitted that. And I do think the judge, and I'm not arguing either way here, but the judge has the right to consider 
whether he was remorseful, and he was very remorseful, he not only reimbursed the money, but the extra money uh, involved in, in investigating the case, which amounted to something like $350,000 or more. And um, he, he, I think you're allowed to consider what purpose would incarceration serve? And his attorney made a very long and eloquent argument about like that threat not to society serving the, anymore. the public good. He's yeah. no longer a threat. He's been humiliated, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the voters have a right to decide whether they want judges who put the defendant's interests ahead of the public's right to know. One more, Jane. Tell us about the dozens of victims of Dr. Strauss who have spoken up. We talked about the story at the top of the podcast. Why do you think this is significant? Well, it's significant because the 78 people who wrote the op-ed really want a chance to hold people accountable. They can't hold Strauss accountable because he killed himself, but they want some recourse in court for their suffering. What is the statute of limitations now, and what would it be under the bill? Well, let me just clarify that. This bill would not really change the statute of limitations, which I believe expired a long time ago for these long-ago crimes and civil actions. But it would open a very specific window. It says, if you were abused by a doctor at a land-grant university between 1978 and 2000, you are allowed to sue. So it's very specifically tailored to the situation at Ohio State. So is this an altruistic thing, or is this just a way for these folks to get some cash? I mean, you know, if they get it, they can argue they deserve it because they were wronged, and this is their compensation. But is that what this is all about? It's just the money? Well, I I can't say that. I can only say that these people were wronged and no one protected them and they want accountability. So, I mean, definitely you can argue that. And how has Ohio State managed to get away so far without the same prolonged public scolding that Michigan State deservedly received in the similar case there? Well, I think it's different, in my opinion, just because the crimes happened so long ago at Michigan State you had the the survivors of that doctor coming forward you know and it was still raw and and so forth not that it isn't still raw for mm-hmm. the Strauss victims but right now the people who are in charge were not in charge when this happened to these people so yeah there's maybe a certain element of the tone deafness about it but it's, it's not quite the same, I don't think. Okay. You've had a busy week, Jane, as usual. <laughs> so thanks for carving out some time to talk with us. Sure thing. N- next up, we'll talk about the huge settlement in the opioid case in Cleveland. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We welcome to the podcast reporters Eric Heising and Pete Krauss. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hi. Pete, let's start with you. We've been talking for three years at Cleveland.com about the need to reform our bail system to stop it from unfairly treating poor people. Our continuing project, Justice for All, has repeatedly banged this drum, examining different ways to remove bias from the system. And today, we have what looks like the biggest step forward yet. What is it? Well, it's uh, it's an effort to have more people, uh, who uh, more felony defendants, released from 
detention after they're arrested uh, and, and, and to keep them from having to spend time in, in jail before their, before their trial, before their first appearance in court. And what they're doing is they're going to start at the, at the Cleveland Municipal Court level, they're going to start um, putting more people on supervision, giving them electronic monitoring, different things like that that, that will allow them to uh, be released without having to post cash without having to put a mo- up, put up a monetary bond and as we've been reporting for a long time now that's been a big problem with a lot of uh, uh, poor uh, defendants that they, they can't afford to post a bond so they end up staying in, in jail for three four five days two weeks what have you this process that they're going to put in place should allow uh, these these defendants to be released early rather than having to to wait what surprises me about this, you know better than anyone because you've been the chief reporter in Justice for All, how how long this has been going on. We launched that project in, in the summer of 2016, and after a little bit of resistance, the judge initiated a full-scale move to do it. He put together a huge panel of people. It looked like for two years we were moving along, but this year it kind of came to a dead stop. Other people at the table have been privately grousing that very little's been going on, and then boom, out of nowhere, he drops this huge development. This is an enormous step forward for fairness and social justice. What happened? Well, it, it is a big step, and and actually, it, things really hadn't come to a dead stop. The, the, it turns out there w- was a lot of activity going on behind the scenes. Uh, judge uh, John Russo, the administrative judge for the Common Police Court, and and uh, other officials started back in June putting together this process for uh, 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 bail reform that would begin in the Cleveland Municipal Court. The, and, and that's part of the problem was that it, is felony defendants appear in Cleveland Municipal Court or municipal courts in general before they go to the Common Police Court. So if you're going to apply certain bail conditions in the Cleveland Municipal Court, they're going to have to be, for, felon, for felons who go to the Common Police Court, they're going to have to meet the standards of the Common Police Court. And that was a big stumbling block, and they had to work through that. And, and they did, but they had to get the Cleveland Municipal Court on board. They have to get judges on board. It's still not an absolute done deal. Plus, uh, other things going on over the last year or two, the, the Ohio Supreme Court's been weighing in on bail reform. The, the legislature's been weighing in on bail reform. Um, there have been a lot of kind of dual uh, 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 alternate paths that have been discussed. So, yeah, it's been a slow process, but it's been fairly deliberate, and I think I think the county de- deserves some credit here. Oh, and one other thing is Armin Budish is, is uh, said recently that the money is going to be there, and that was another stumbling block. Was the money going to be there to do this? Because it will take probably some more personnel. So over the three years that we've been reporting this, our Greater Cleveland series has seemed to put a focus on the challenges to those in poverty. So I take it that has a lot of support then in the courthouse? Oh, I, I think it does. I, I think this, this definitely has support amongst advocates for uh, uh for for the poor for the disadvantaged uh i think i think the judges are probably behind this i think the judges have been slow to come around to certain aspects of bail reform because they they don't necessarily like being told how to do their job but i think they're beginning to realize that uh, uh some reform is necessary and one other thing this reform that goes in it, it it's it, it's not binding it's not a, it's not a law the judges will still have discretion they can do what they want Uh, But this is going to set some guidelines for some consistency, and and it should pay dividends. 
As part of the series, uh, you have spent some time exploring the roles of municipal courts and the idea of potentially merging them into even a single court. There's nothing like that in what we're talking about here. Do you see that as an eventual possibility, or do you see even greater cooperation between the municipal courts yeah. and everybody else? I, I, I do, but I also believe in world peace. Okay, <laughs> uh, no, but th- that's a that's a good point, and we've been we've been banging that drum for a long time. This idea of of, of uh, consolidating municipal courts. There's 13 in the county. Why do we need so many? They all do things differently. They all have different IT systems. They don't communicate very well. They all send their defendants up to the common police court, yet the communication is very lousy. Now, this new process that's going in is only going to apply to the Cleveland Municipal Court, which provides 60% of the felons that go to common police court. But if it works and if it goes into place, I was told that the the next step is then figuring out how the the other 12 municipal courts around the the county will uh, embrace this. And I think a lot of them will, but again, it's money. They don't; those municipalities do not have the money to do this. It's people are going to probably be coming back to the county executive and looking for some more funds, and and that money may be there if it's not already. Okay, let's move on to the biggest news of the week: the big cash settlements for Cuyahoga and Summit counties in the opioid case. Eric, we talked about the news at the top of the podcast, but you're the expert. Why did the Ford drug companies settle? It's amazing what can happen as a trial. Uh, a trial date gets closer and closer. This has been something that's been in the works for a while, though in various forms. Um, in the end, I think, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, we're talking about a, a settlement worth $260 million from four major drug companies, three of the largest companies in the United States, Amerisource Bergen, McKesson, Cardinal Health, which is based in Dublin outside of Columbus, and Teva Pharmaceuticals. This this came after a lot a lot of negotiations, and in, in the end, they felt that this was the best way to uh, have this litigation go forward, while at the same time, not risking a, what could have been a huge verdict. Uh, the counties were asking for a combined eight billion dollars. So obviously, the negotiations go on behind closed doors, but you're on the other side of those closed doors. You see people coming and going. And the negotiations from from what you've reported, what others reported, were were pretty fierce in the days before the trial was to begin. And it seems like it was multiple sets, right? Because you had those four attorneys generals from other states trying to settle this whole thing for everybody. And you had the cities and counties across the nation saying, no way, you're not settling it for us. You're not taking care of our interest. And then Summit in Cuyahoga did that 11th hour deal, which was pretty, pretty big money and, and dropped that just for the trials to begin. Does everyone now get settlements proportional to what, what they got here? I'm with Pete where I believe in world peace as well. (laughs) That's actually been a major issue uh, that has been discussed not only by, you know, not only in this part, but what by Attorney General Dave Yost. He was at the City Club on Tuesday talking about the people who get in first often get the most money. They have the most leverage at the time. Um, You know, the companies are paying for the first time. And it's not that they don't know the value of what they're dealing with, but they do very much know. you know, the risks involved as something's going forward. You also got to think about this, that this is trying to basically set a template for how, as you referenced, how other people will end up, you know, negotiating this. Well, Cuyahoga got $260 million deal. Why shouldn't a city like Chicago, which is much larger than Cleveland or even the county, get something that much more? Because they were hit 
with the opioid crisis just as hard as we were. One of the things I've heard from lawyers, though, is that the first ones in, while they get get more, they do a lot of work. So, so isn't that part of the equation there? Absolutely. Although all of that really kind of goes into a, a separate pot. The question of how big that pot is, is really uh, something the judge will have to decide and something the parties will be fighting about. But that really goes into attorney's fees and costs. But to your point, at the same time, these are the people that took the majority of the depositions. They, they cataloged all these documents. They archived all this data and that work does not just necessarily go to the two cases for Cuyahoga and Summit that were supposed to go to trial this week. That goes for everybody. So when talk of these lawsuits began, everyone involved from Judge Dan Polster to the plaintiff to the defendant said that any settlements or awards should go to solving the opioid crisis. Everyone seemed to say we could not have the same situation we had with cigarette awards years ago where the money vanished in a government budget. So what are Cuyahoga and Summit going to do with the money? Cuyahoga County has put out a plan for uh, how they're going to spend actually some previous settlements. So in addition to these 11th hour settlements that happened this week, there were also several smaller settlements that took place with some drug manufacturers, Johnson & Johnson, Endo Pharmaceuticals, Allergan. That was about $66.4 million total. Uh, Cuyahoga is getting about, I think, $23.1 million of that after attorney's fees and everything else. And they've put out a plan to put that money towards things to uh, help issues in the county jail, child welfare, uh, prosecutions of drug crimes, and really just trying to tackle what they had to pay to combat the opioid epidemic even before all this litigation. So I was looking forward to seeing these cases proceed, how the counties made their cases would have been enlightening, including for governments waiting their turn with lawsuits. Are we still going to see a chance for that with the pharmacies? Right. And so we talk about all these settlements, and we're actually leaving out one company and a major one at that, Walgreens. Uh, of of the companies that settled, but there were six going in on Friday, five settled. There was actually a fifth one that was very small, $1.25 million settlement, mostly for an educational foundation. But Walgreens was the holdout. They were not sued as a pharmacy. They were sued as a distributor. That said, there are several companies that were left that were severed, basically put to the side so this trial could be manageable. And it's possible those companies, and we're talking big ones, we're talking Walmart, CVS, Rite Aid, Discount Drug Mart, those could go to trial as early as next year. So do you expect we'll ever have a real trial, or do you think we'll see everything get settled? I think there will be more settlements. And the only the way I you know know that is because, or at least think that, is because um, we have had now two major trials in this country and th that were at least approaching, and there were major settlements before that. That said, unlike Cuyahoga County, there was a major trial in state court in Oklahoma. There were settlements with Purdue Pharma, the maker of Oxycontin, Teva Pharmaceuticals, who also sued with, or settled with this, these counties. But Johnson & Johnson, one of the biggest medical companies in this country, held out and went to trial. Ultimately, they lost. So I think other companies will see that, but I still think there are ones that really haven't been involved in the litigation nearly as much that may um, still want to know how a jury will handle their claims. All right, we can't wrap this up without having a little bit of fun at the expense of Dave Yost. The Ohio Attorney General was blasted by a lot of people when he tried to take over all of these lawsuits and prevent counties like Cuyahoga from collecting their own damages. You attended a speech this week where he surrendered, and you've just reported that the governor, Mike DeWine, has brought him in to try and help him make peace with all of the people that he has so offended. 
Right. So as of Tuesday, one day after the settlement were announced and the trial was scuttled, he spoke at the City Club uh, on a variety of topics, mostly about the opioid litigation. And one of the things he did was essentially concede defeat uh, for something he had proposed or at least supported that would have been introduced in the legislature that would have given him power over some litigation and ultimately amounted to a power grab in this opioid litigation if it had gone through. Uh, he basically acknowledged that it was very unpopular and he said something about arrows in his back I think he had to take those two staffers in a couple of weeks to take all the arrows out of his back which mm-hmm. striking image he <laughs> yeah. has a sense of humor about it at least he, he very much does and I think that that's probably one of the one of the um, saving graces of that because he has taken a lot of positions that are very unpopular with attorneys from cities and counties as well as the governor himself At the same time, though, one day later, he was in the governor's mansion in Bexley with a lot of these lawyers that he's been slinging arrows with, some of which, as he said, ended up in his back. And basically, both he, the states, or uh, the uh, city and county lawyers, and the governor were trying to figure out a way where they can work together and try to essentially ensure two things, that the money, any money for as part of a global settlement that Ohio receives would actually be used uh, for opioid addiction and treatment as well as basically ensuring that everything is doled out proportionally, going to the places where they need it and not really leaving anybody behind. He, It's interesting Mike DeWine's doing that because Mike DeWine was very outspoken in opposition to what Dave Yost, as you described, a power grab, a good description. Uh, so, so the fact that Dave Yost has agreed to sit down with Mike DeWine, who was not in his corner, and all of these others who were pretty angry about what he was trying to do, it's a good sign, right? We may end up at a good place. We may end up at a good place. I, it's a little bit nuanced, as everything is with courts. This is not necessarily an attempt by everybody to just band together and say, we're all joining together to combat uh, the drug companies together. This is really just talking about a way, if there is some sort of resolution nationwide, or even just with the state of Ohio, that everybody will get their fair share. But at the meantime, everybody's still litigating their own cases, and some of the uh, backdoor fighting may continue. Eric and Pete, thanks for joining us on This Week in the CLE. Up next, we'll talk with Courtney Astolfi about the microgrid, a potential game changer for the Cleveland's economic development future. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney Astolfi. Hello, hello. One of the coolest economic development ideas we've heard of in a long time is a microgrid, something that Cleveland is uniquely qualified to provide. Basically, it's an electrical system that is off the national grid. And to have one, you need to have a separate set of power lines, something almost no city has. But Cleveland does. Because it runs its own power utility, it has power lines running in parallel to those of First Energy. If the nation's grid ever went down, Cleveland could keep the power on through the microgrid. Companies that cannot afford to lose power, the big tech companies, might move here just for that guarantee. And this week, we saw a big step forward on the planning for it. Yeah, so a few days ago, the county, the city, and and partners released a request for qualifications. They're, They're starting the search for a developer for this project. And they said that they expect for a developer to be chosen by April 2020. So so that process is underway. And then, you know, construction would would come after that choice is made next year. 
So this idea came from County Executive Armin Budish, but because it involves Cleveland public power, the mayor has to be on board. Are they all on the same page for the microgrid? Yeah, so obviously the city's a key player here. Right. Um, the city and county have you know, struck this agreement, and it was the request that went out this week was joint between Cleveland public power, the county, and the city. So they're working together on this. You don't just need separate power lines for this to work, though, right? You also need power generation that's off the grid. You can't count on any of the existing electricity electrical plants in the state to provide it. Where's the power going to come from? So, you know, the way the county presented it this week, that that's still undetermined. But the request that went out did include that that developers could potentially have the ability to work with Cleveland Thermal, who we've heard about being involved in this for a while now, um, could work with Cleveland Thermal, which would, you know, build a plant to generate the power. But the county also took pains to say that they're also accepting proposals that might not involve Cleveland Thermal. So we got to kind of see how that plays out. All right. You had another good news story out of the county this week, something that probably hasn't happened all year. Two good news stories out of the county in one week. But this one took a long time to break. It's about the crowding at the county jail, which is implicated in the inhumane conditions and rash of deaths in 2018. It's finally dropped. This is huge news for the county jail. Um, you know, they were operating, their capacity is um, 1,700 inmates. And last year they were up to like 2,500 at one point. This week we saw, we reported that earlier this month, the population on one day was down to 1,790, which is the closest to capacity it's been. You know, Armin Budish said that's the closest it's been to capacity that anyone can remember. Wow. how they do that? So Chief of Staff Bill Mason really went out of his way to say this isn't one big initiative that that's brought the population down. It's it's piecemeal. Um, they've done a lot of efforts with looking at um, the judges particularly have been looking at low level felonies and keeping a closer eye on those, seeing how they can move hearings forward, look at bonds and, and get some of those folks out of the jail. Um, the county rehired former jail director Ken Kochevar to to also kind of look at that, see which inmates could be moved out of the jail while they're awaiting trial. Another piece of this, a small piece, but um, the bail projects come in and, and they've bailed about 60 people out of the jail. And That's the nonprofit that just works to reduce jail population. Yeah, they just front the money for their bond. So it's it's a lot of little things that have culminated in this, the county says. So it's a lot of work. It sounds like it's taking daily effort by a whole bunch of people to do it, and they're in crisis mode because of all of the, the jail controversy. Do they have the will to stick with this until we get to a day where there's a new justice center and potentially a new jail? I mean, hopefully it seems like a lot of efforts focused on this right now, so I'd be surprised if we see them give up those efforts. So staying with the jail, Bill Mason has another idea that could help cut the population. It's an old idea that many people like, but no one's been able to accomplish. Central booking. Can you give us an explainer on the concept? Yeah, central booking is something a lot of cities are starting to turn to to reduce their jail numbers and improve their criminal justice system. It would be kind of a one-stop shop for inmates coming into the jail. The goal is to... You know, hook them up with public defenders as early in the process as possible, have prosecutors review their charges to see if they're 
ultimately sitting in jail on charges that would later get reduced. It's it's really getting that court process underway as soon as folks walk in the door. So the original talk was to build a central booking into the new or renovated Justice Center. But Mason says he can do it now. How's he going to do that? So in the interim, before we get that new eventual facility or rebuilt facility, he envisions taking spaces of the Justice Center and and putting some of these services in and kind of just making do with the space they have. There is a question mark about um, what's going to happen with the Cleveland Police Headquarters, and that's a potential space Mason sees as possibly being used to have some of these central booking services. Okay. Is anyone against this? No, I mean, (laughs) people are pretty on board with it. But the challenge here is going to be getting all the parties that need to be on board on board. That's going to be the monumental task here. You've got to bring in the suburban municipal courts. You've got to you've got to talk through and work things out with the million different police departments in this county. So getting all the players together is going to be the challenge. One more for you, Courtney. We all know that the RTA has been mired in controversy and mismanagement. Frankly, I don't think disaster is too strong a word. No public agency seems more messed up at the moment. Uh, But it's been quantified a bit. A study this week predicts big financial troubles for RTA without a tax increase, consolidation with other agencies, or some other big action. How did the study come about? Yeah, so the Greater Cleveland Partnership, our our Chamber of Commerce, put out this report. Um, It wasn't commissioned by the RTA, so GCP undertook this on its own. But they wanted to look at these issues at the same time that RTA is doing a bunch of their own in-house planning for their future. And and really, the the report identifies a, a lot of cuts and changes to the way RTA does things within their own agency to maybe mitigate that call for a tax increase but the report did say you know a tax increase would go a ways towards resolving some of their financial difficulties it's interesting that the gcp is behind a report that's (laughs) recommending a tax increase given how much they're working to reduce taxes well i you know i wouldn't say it was super supportive of that they were trying to this report was trying to throw out other methods that could be complimentary or instead of perhaps my bet is when push comes to uh, the gcp will say you know instead of a tax increase why don't we consolidate all these transit agencies and build one system but we'll see I mean, one of the more striking findings in that study came in comparison to other transit agencies. The RTA spends way more on administration, even though salaries were pretty comparable, and a huge amount more on providing rides to the disabled. Um, So how are they going to fix that? Yeah. So, I mean, we we know probably what GCP would want to see there. And in RTA, some of the trustees, you know, were receptive when they were learning about the high administration costs at their own agency. The paratransit rides, however, we got a, a little interesting response from RTA's new CEO, India Birdsong, when talking about these privatization of, of paratransit rides. She said that, you know, RTA wants to do everything that it can to keep those services in-house and make those services efficient in-house. I mean, in-house. it was a big number per, I mean, it was... Like double. Yeah. It was like per 60 ride. bucks or something. I mean, it was, or maybe it was 30, but it was like eye-popping. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we're in the middle of all these conversations right now about how to make sure no one gets left behind in the future economic prowess of Cleveland. And I'm not sure it's a bad thing to be the city 
that spends the most money on on transporting the disabled. I mean, that, I mean, when you talk about let's make sure everybody has an opportunity, the disabled have challenges that we don't face. And if, if they're using these rides to get to jobs or to, to carry on with their lives, I mean, that could be a point of pride for Cleveland. Well, it could be, but let's see what other cities do. And if they provide the service, like, just as well for less money, like, maybe we can follow that. Yeah, in any event, things are are going to have to be reevaluated at RTA to see how it carries forward and figures these issues out. Yeah, it's just the GCP is looking at this purely from a financial standpoint. And as many elected leaders will point out, the government isn't about money, it's about service. And so I, 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 it would be fascinating to do a deeper dive on the paratransit service and what we're doing differently, both in terms of what it's costing us, because as bad as RTA is, there's probably inefficiencies galore, but are we doing a better thing by our residents? Anyway, hopefully the new director will get the house in order. Courtney, thanks for coming by. In a moment, we'll talk with entertainment reporter Annie Nikoloff about Halloween. Annie, welcome to the podcast. Hey, happy to be here. Annie, everywhere I look, I see Christmas. The first Christmas ale pour is today. Great Lakes Brewing. The zoo has announced its holiday programs, and it's not even Halloween. So let's put on the brakes. Let's <laughs> let's let's stick with the holiday at hand. You've been writing about Halloween. It's next Thursday. Tell us about what you think the best things to do are. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I I feel like New Year's Eve stuff is right around the corner too. With all this <laughs> Christmas stuff happening. Uh, but yeah, this weekend, there's a lot of really cool uh, Halloween events happening. I have three that I want to share. Uh, one of them is Halloweezy. It's this party that's put on in Ohio City. Uh, it's, it has an outer space theme this year. And the event is actually a nonprofit that fills abandoned buildings every year with festivities and live music. Uh, this year, it will be in apparently what used to be a chip and pretzel factory in Ohio City. Uh, so that's supposed to be a lot of fun. I, I heard tickets are going fast for that. But anyway... Um, also happening on Saturday is the Beachland Halloween show, which is a lot of fun because local musicians kind of take on uh, the character of other famous bands and dress up like them and perform cover sets. Uh, this year, they'll be featuring the Cars, Foo Fighters, Hall & Oates, Weezer, No Doubt, a bunch of others. So, no, that's cool. That's really fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, and also on Saturday, I feel like Saturday is the big day it's for like Halloween. It's like the day, right? Yeah. Well, there's a move to, to make Halloween permanently the last Saturday <laughs> of October, which would be weird. But anyway, what's your third one? <laughs> anyway, on Saturday, uh, a more family-friendly event is uh, the Great Pumpkin Party on Public Square. Uh, kids can dress up and go trick-or-treating at different booths around the square. Uh, there are going to be a bunch of activities, face painting, live music uh, for people to check out there. And that one's free to the public. Very cool. And then you've got Boo at the Zoo, which is still happening this yep. weekend. I know my kids want to check out the Haunted Trail in Lorain County, which we've never done. And then everybody's got to get, they haven't done their pumpkin patch pictures. Yes. They've got to go you know, on a hayride, take a picture in a pumpkin patch, right? Yeah, it's pretty much the last weekend you can check out a lot of things. I know like Haunted Houses are wrapping up on the 31st next week, and this weekend is the last you know time they'll be open to the public. Um, there's going to be a dance party in Lakewood on the 31st. There's a ton of stuff happening, but just trying to pick out the favorites here. And, and for the candy thing, right, There's there are cities that set their Halloween for the weekend. There are many that still do the 31st. In Cleveland Heights, it was last weekend. Um, so there's also, for, the, for kids, plenty of opportunity to go and get cavities. 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, uh, when I was growing up, it was always the Sunday before Halloween. So my kids still go to my parents and trick or treat there. And then we have on the 31st, of course, you have a school party. The little kids aren't even allowed to get candy at school. Um, but uh, we're excited. So Annie, are you dressing up? I am dressing up. What are you going to be? Okay, so it's a little bit obscure, but have you guys seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite? Yes. Do you remember the scene where Kip goes to a workout class and the instructor is Rex Quando? No, but okay. I'm believing you. Okay, so I'm dressing up like Rex Quando and my boyfriend is dressing up like Kip from Napoleon Dynamite. Very fun. So, <laughs> so I made my daughter get, I love that I made my daughter, but last year we went to the Laura Ingalls Wilder Museum because that's the kind of mom nerd that I am on vacation. And she got a Laura Ingalls dress. And then I realized that Laura Ingalls and Anne of Green Gables were the same time period. So now she's going to be Anne this year. And I got her a hat with red braids. And then I made a book out of like cardboard that I'm going to wear as like wings and I'm going to be a bookworm. <laughs> I'm very excited about this. Also, we have backup crayon costumes. And here's the thing. I did not like Halloween as a teenager or a college student when basically it was like an excuse for to wear like a leotard and put on cat ears. You know, it's, that was just not my thing. But now with kids, it is so much more fun. What do you do about the candy though? Okay, so my, my husband likes to stay home and hand out. He always has to get Twix. No, no, but I mean, I'm, I'm talking about you know, when you were a kid, you'd get a big bag of candy and you'd wolf it down and nobody nobody cared. But today, given everybody's worry about sugar, what do you do about that? So I think it depends. And like, so like I said, the primary school, they like literally at our Halloween parties, we have vegetables and clementines. Oh. I'm going to put little Sharpie faces on the, the clementines to make <laughs> them look like jack-o'-lanterns. <laughs> I don't do the work. Some some moms do the real work where they peel the, the the clementine and put a little celery stick and make it look like pumpkin. I don't do that much work. Um, but then the older <laughs> kids, they actually get junk at their their um, parties. There's also a teal pumpkin movement so that if you have a teal pumpkin out, um, kids with allergies know that they can get stickers or pencils. Um and, and actually, chocolate is probably less common now than like Skittles because there are more kids allergic to like and peanuts, you, you know, Snickers. Um, I have coached my kids to always go for Snickers and peanut M&Ms over, you know, Milky Way and regular M&Ms. Um, but no, kids can eat the candy. I think, I mean, it's up to there's, there's dentists that do the buyback programs that are like, you know, bring in this. We'll give you something else. My kids are allowed a bunch of candy at the time and then like basically one a day. And then, of course, after they go to bed, that's when we go. And sneak do, uh, the candy. Final question. Do you give out full size candy bars? No, or I'm not as cool as you, Chris Quinn. <laughs> we give out full size candy full bars. Size? Yeah. Everybody oh go gosh. to Chris Quinn's yeah. house. Yeah, I got to go trick or treating. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for joining us, Annie. It's this week in the CLE. It's time once again to wrap this thing up, Laura. What part did you find the most interesting? I think bail reform and central booking are two really big stories that are we're just at the cusp of, and I think they're going to be really interesting to watch as we go forward, and they could completely change the community in terms of jail population and all the issues we've been covering in the jail, as well as poverty. I don't know. I think your thing about women and their ever-present fear of attack is something people will want to talk about. Maybe talking about it will lead to a solution in a day when you can walk down a dark street without a key held, held tight between your fingers to use as a weapon. It's definitely going to take a change in the collective consciousness of men and women. And I think a lot of discussion to change that going forward. 
All right, we'll end there. Special alert, we will not have an episode next week. We'll be participating in Cleveland Rising. We'll be back the following week when we'll talk about some of the results from Election Day, including that move in Cleveland Heights to have a strong mayor form of government. Thanks to Jane, Eric, Pete, Courtney, and Annie for the conversation, and thank you for listening. This Week in the CLE is published Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. 